Uh, so look, there's, there's very little that we can be clear on and that we can give a, a definitive answer to. I, I think there are just a couple of things, that, though, that we can be clear on. Firstly, that universities are already being impacted and will continue to be impacted for a, an undefined period, whether that's for study abroad students, whether that's for full degree students, and of course, uh, home students too, domestic students, as I guess you'd call them. And, and secondly, that universities need to be planning and in some cases already implementing plans for a range of scenarios impacting their different communities. This episode of the Student Housing Insight Podcast is sponsored by LEAP. So have you ever had that student prospect that, I don't know, maybe they are a part-time student and holding down a full-time job because they're working their own way through school? Or maybe it's a student whose parents are not in the picture for some reason. Or, or maybe it's an international student who doesn't have a sponsor or a family member that is stateside. What's the common element between those three types of prospects? They don't have someone that can be a guarantor. This is where LEAP can step in and provide their institutional rent guarantee product. LEAP essentially becomes that prospect's rich uncle, for lack of a better word, that they never knew and who was willing to step in and co-sign. And as the property manager, you've got the peace of mind that if the resident defaults in the middle of their lease term, your exposure to lost rental revenue is eliminated. Heck, even if the student doesn't move in, <laughs> have you ever had that happen? I've certainly had that happen. LEAP will still guarantee up to three months rent for that student. If you are turning away students because they don't have a qualified guarantor, contact LEAP today. You can find all their information in the show notes or look them up at www. Does anybody say www anymore? Look them up at leapeasy.com. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and thank you for joining in for the special edition of the Student Housing Insight Podcast. Um, first of all, let me say this is not a typical episode. Uh, we want the SHI Podcast to be a resource to discover best practices in our industry and discuss new ideas about how to make student housing better. So, when it comes to things like a global pandemic, I would want to talk about best practices to ensure your, your students and your residents are doing the right things to lower their risk of spreading germs and working with the university's health department to help broadcast their message to the student body. But I think most people are getting that information from the media on an hourly basis these days. And, and hopefully your university is communicating with you about the steps they are taking in the event of a campus outbreak. But what I really want to address in today's episode are just the questions that seem to be going through the minds of on-campus housing administrators and off-campus property managers. To help me with that, I've got our in-house co-host on all things related to on-campus housing, Dr. Philip Batazuski. Dr. B, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Wes. Great to be here. It <laughs> would would love to kind be talking about. <laughs> I'm like it's. Eh, I'd prefer to be talking about something far more positive, but here we are dealing with the things that we're dealing with. Yeah. 
And joining us as a special guest today, all the way from London, England and the UK, Enzo Ramo. Enzo, how are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Very well. So for those in our audience who are not familiar with Enzo, Enzo is a global higher education specialist holding senior roles at several universities in the UK with concentration on recruiting international students. He was the chair of USAS's International Advisory Group. Enzo is now the Chief Relationship Officer for Unilodgers, as well as an adjunct professor of global education at the Nanjing University in China. Enzo, that's a mouthful. (laughs) I don't even think that really uh, covers half of the credentials and experience that that you've got. But the main thing I want to get across to our audience is, is this. You have a good grasp on how international students go through the process of entering countries for, for the purpose of education. And when we are talking about a global pandemic, I, I think you can read the tea leaves and, and give us an understanding of, of how universities may be impacted by this. So thanks so much for, for taking time out today and, and sharing your perspective. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for asking me, Wes. So before we get into it, let me address the first question that I think many of, of, of the off-campus housing providers are asking themselves. Um, I'm certainly starting to get some emails and, and direct messages on LinkedIn concerning <laughs> this, but what should I do if I find out one of my residents has COVID-19? The quick answer is don't send your employees into that bedroom or apartment or, or house or whatever the the unit situation may be. Contact your local health department and the CDC for guidance regarding appropriate measures to take. I can't stress that enough. This is still very early on in, in how everyone is approaching this. We've already talked about um, uh, over this past weekend, I, I heard reports of uh, some different strains that possibly, you know, could be uh, taking on <laughs> another um, another form. So it's very important that you're working with them to, to understand how you need to manage things with that property, how you need to manage things with the other residents and, and potentially roommates as well. So make sure that, that you contact Again, your local health department, as well as the CDC, we'll have some links for certainly for the CDC and as well as for the World Health Organization in our podcast notes. Um, but that's really the best thing that that I know to tell you at this time uh, to reduce your risk, both as an employer and a housing provider. Uh, Dr. B, what, what are universities and their housing directors being told to do if they suspect or have a confirmed case of this virus? So interestingly, we're telling on-campus folks the same thing. So fortunately, and and knock on wood, there's been no cases in Buffalo or even in the Western New York region, although there are cases towards New York City, but we're doing the same thing. So we're following, um, in our case, both the CDC and then our state health department and their guidelines related to response, quarantine, self-quarantine, and really using that guidance that's being provided. So our, I think one thing for us that 
we started talking about is our cleaning products were already, our standard cleaning products and standard cleaning procedures were already in line with what has come out from the CDC and our state health department. We are doing and have added some additional cleaning on top of what was already sort of fulfilling the responsibilities that we have. But if, if we start to hear that a student is feeling ill, the campus has already started providing both print marketing and then a variety of social media and then emails about what students should be doing, um, calling our health center before just showing up there. And then the health center has a set of protocols that they're following if they get a call from a student, including notifying the appropriate parties on campus, including us. And then we would work through the steps of how are we going to quarantine that student if they need to remain here on campus, which is one of the guidelines that's still a little gray on the edges, where Mm -hmm. I was reading this morning before we got on here that the CDC is really saying it may not be best to, in the case of a college or university, send a student back to their home because they're then just exposing themselves to more people as they get themselves there, depending on where home is. And so Mm -hmm. it may be in the best interest of everybody that we do figure out quarantining them on site as compared to shipping them off someplace else. Interesting. Gotcha. Okay. So this this past week, many universities here in the U.S. canceled their study abroad programs for the semester and, and brought those students back to the U.S. and, and placing them either in self-quarantine or, or have even set up quarantine facilities. And the important thing I want to make sure the audience remembers when we're talking about study abroad, those are programs that are sponsored by a student's home university. The university has a certain level of responsibility for making sure they are not exposing those students to something that may harm them or where there's potential of a, of a travel ban. Um, we've talked about that many times on this show and, and how that can end up impacting students. Uh, that are both domestic as well as as well as international students, but something that would end up you know keeping them from returning. So I, I think everyone understands the reason those programs would be canceled. But as it relates to true international students, uh, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but it would be up to the student's home country and the host country if that student has to return to their home country to to stay. Is that correct? Gosh, Wes, uh, look, I think one of the challenges with this discussion is that to some degree, we're going to be speculating about what might happen and what's happening, what the impact of the virus might be in different situations and in different countries, both as hosts and as sending countries. I I guess for those of us in the UK and the USA, we've got the advantage of being able to see how the Australian universities have been impacted and how, Mm -hmm. how they and their countries have managed the situation. Uh, so look, there's, there's very little that we can be clear on and that we can give a, a definitive answer to. I, I think there are just a couple of things, that, though, that we can be clear on. Firstly, that universities are already being impacted and will continue to be impacted for a, an undefined period, whether that's for study abroad students, whether that's for full degree students, and of course, uh, home students too, domestic students, as I guess you'd call them. And secondly, that universities need to be planning and in some cases already implementing plans for a range of scenarios impacting their different communities. 
So let me try and get into your question, Wes. Um, what are the implications for international students? Will they have to return home and, and who decides? Now look, in some senses, your question sounds really simple, um, <laughs> but it's not. Let me try and unpack it a bit. Firstly, there's no uniform category of international student. They come in lots of shapes and sizes, full degree undergraduate students, uh, master's students, research students. You've already referred to short-term study abroad students. And of course, uh, in our universities, we've got students from virtually every different country in the world. Some from advanced nations that will have clear policies in place, clear views on how to manage the situation, and mm -hmm. others from well from less developed parts of the world, uh, parts of the world that claim not to have any coronavirus present when most sensible people believe that coronavirus is present almost everywhere. Yeah. And then when considering these students, are we looking at them as the university which is hosting them? So Buffalo State, Reading University, hosting students from around the world, or are we looking at them as um, looking at them from the viewpoint of the of the sending university? So, so I'm sorry that I've not got a simple answer to your question. <laughs> Other than that, we need different scenarios for each of these different categories of students. Um, well, and and, and, and I think that's. Yeah. Let me interrupt you for just a second. I think that's one thing that that really makes this so difficult yeah. for for universities to you know, have kind of a, a simple answer to it because, uh, you know, every kind of situation can be a little bit different because of the of, of program that may be involved with an international student. So, no, I, I, I wish there was a way that, that this could be simplified, but <laughs> I think you saying that there is no simple way, I think, is is exactly uh, the case. So, so yeah, continue shedding light on that because I think it's important for for our audience to really understand how complicated this is. Well, I guess I guess from our point of view in in universities, we need to think about what we can do, what we have control over. And you know, Phil talked about some very practical steps that universities can take within within their residences. I, I think key, and, and I think Phil um, suggested this too, I think key is that we need to show the students that are studying with us today from wherever they come from, care and, and support. Um, some will be frightened and they'll be concerned for their families who are in affected areas. And of course, their families, uh, whether they're in affected areas or not, will also be worried about their sons and daughters studying far away from home. Of course. So I, I think vital is that we, we have good, clear communications from universities to their students, but also remembering that they're part of wider communities and those wider communities extend across the world to alumni and to the family and friends of, of students too. So, and let me ask you this, I mean, looking forward into, you know, next semester, are you seeing or hearing uh, of any kind of effect that this is currently having on the, the student visa process and, and applying for student visas? Well, I, I think it's still early days. Um, mo most students heading to the UK and to the USA for this autumn 
still haven't finished high school or their bachelor's degrees if they're heading for graduate studies. Gotcha. I, I guess we'll start to get early indications for the for the autumn for the fall intake by by early summer when students typically arrive for pre-sessional English language programs. And it will a lot will depend on what happens in the sending countries in terms of examination results. So, I mean, here in the UK, there is talk of our, our high school examinations, our A-levels being delayed. The US recruits heavily from, from China and from India. And if, if I mean, we know that um, Chinese high school and Chinese university exams are being delayed, will they be able to catch up in time in order to send students to the UK, the US um, for the start of the, the autumn term? Now, the, the answer to that question is I, I don't know, but there'll certainly be pressure on universities to delay the start of the new academic year, as has happened in mm-hmm. Australia. And we in universities will put pressure on the visa authorities to get more staff in place, to process applications more, more quickly once students get their results in order that we can start on time. So I think the message is we're all going to have to be flexible and responsive. Global education is is really important to us. It's it's really important to us financially, of course, but it's also important to us for the uh, intellectual and cultural capital that we get and, and also for future business and diplomatic relationships. So universities and countries handling this well and sensitively is key, not just to the short-term success of our universities, but actually to longer-term business and diplomatic relationships more, more broadly. Yeah, and, and I want to get into the the financial impact that that, that that will have, specifically for housing providers. We'll talk about that here shortly. And, uh, you know, I, most international students attend school in, in the U.S. and U.K. and Australia. So I really want to kind of focus, you know, uh, our discussion on those three countries. Those countries also have. Uh, this isn't. This isn't what any map from from the World Health Organization will tell you. But those countries seem to have the lowest number of, of confirmed COVID nineteen cases per capita. And, and I say that from as you mentioned earlier, there are other countries that are not reporting any cases. But when you really look at which countries those are. Their, their infrastructure may not be quite as as sophisticated as what we have in the in the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia when it comes to testing and and getting that out there. So getting the testing out there and getting those results back in. So you do oh, have well, to well, kind well, of you can say yeah. you can say that, but actually, um, you know, it's interesting sitting here in the U.K. hearing reports of how the U.S. is handling this and and how there's a shortage of test kits. In, in the USA. So, I mean, the truth is we don't even know what the true, um, the true spread is in, in the US in the same way that we don't know what the true spread is yet in, in the UK. We know that numbers of reported cases are small in all three countries, but we know that here in the UK, just uh, across one day this weekend, the numbers of reported cases doubled. Yeah. Yeah, we in my home state of of South Carolina, we actually tripled over the weekend, and wow. and I think some of that you know has to do with two weeks ago here in the U.S. We could only uh, the only places that were allowed to to do the testing was the CDC, and last week 
there were ended up being, I believe the, it was right at a hundred other testing centers uh, were now able to do the testing for, for COVID-19. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to see an explosion happen, uh, especially in the U S just simply because we are now able to, to test more people. I, I'm still a little unsure as <laughs> so does our administration seem unsure if we've got enough, if, if we've got enough testing to, for everybody or not, but that, that being aside, I do think that this is something that, that globally we're, we're obviously dealing with. I don't think there's one single country that has not been impacted. Sure. They may not even know about it, but sure. I think that there's there's probably a lot that have just gone unreported. But So th- this creates an interesting setup for, for the summer and, and fall of 2020, where at least you know in my mind, current, current international students will likely try to extend their stay. Um, you have domestic students that can't participate in study abroad programs, as well as domestic students looking to become international students and, and can't because of travel bans or, or just deciding it's not worth the risk. So within these three countries, could this, in your opinion, uh, both of you guys, do, do you think this could cause a shortage in, in housing at many campuses? And I'm talking specifically on-campus housing at this point. So for us, we are too early to tell. Um, we're in the process right now of um, returning student housing selection. So students that currently are attending Buffalo State College are in the process of deciding where it is that they want to live. Some of them are required to live with us next year. Others are optional. Um, and then our first year housing process is technically open, but it's really early still for our students to commit. Typically, they really aren't committing until they get close to that May 1st deadline, which air quotes on my end of whether that's a deadline or not, because we still do get students after that point. I'm actually interested to see, at least for U.S. universities, if it actually causes more vacancies, Wes. So um, I'm wondering, will students choose to stay closer to home and then stay at home as compared to perhaps moving farther away from home and needing to live in a residence hall and, and thinking that is that opening them up to more people and more quote unquote germs, depending on how this progresses as we get into spring and summer, like you said, I, I wonder if it'll go the other direction. I know that, you know, the guidelines are saying that if we do need to quarantine students, ideally you're putting them in a building by themselves. And so depending on your capacity to do that, you know, not every school has a whole building that's empty. Um, and so they may not be able to quarantine. And so you're looking at other other institutions nearby that might have whole buildings offline to be able to temporarily house students, which I know you wanted to talk about finances in a bit, does get into that idea as well. It could end up being an interesting way of gaining some extra income if you have a building that's offline because an, an institution nearby doesn't. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I do have, you know, ask that question of, you know, is this going to cause a shortage? And, and the, the question I'm really asking is, is, you know, do we know how this is going to, 
to impact us, you know, what, what theories are out there. And I think, you know, every market, every kind of level of institution is, it's probably going to affect a little bit differently because of, you know, the, you know, is it, a, is it an urban campus? Is it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of these land grant universities, especially throughout the Southeast of the U S unless if it's a tier one school with the, with a medical school, uh, a lot of those universities are, are kind of out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and so, you know, a good majority of the housing is being provided by the university versus, you know, having a purpose-built private sector, or just neighborhoods with, with buildings that, that house a lot of students. And so I think, I think there's so many things that you've got to take into consideration that, you know, thinking that there could be a blanket, statement of, you know, hey, housing's going to going to have a lot of gaps in it this, you know, this next year because of the coronavirus or saying, hey, housing is is going to be overbooked because there is more students uh, at a particular university than there is, you know, during a typical year because of a travel ban. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit naive for us to say that that's going to be something that is going to happen throughout the country because I just don't think that's that would be wise. On the flip, though, Wes, I will say it, it as we think about summer housing, you might see at some institutions, including here at Buff State, that international students who would otherwise travel home may actually choose to stay. And so you might see an uptick in summer housing occupancy, as well as students taking more summer classes than they would prior, because typically one of the requirements of staying on campus for the summer is taking summer courses. Uh, You have to be an enrolled student. And so if they're thinking about not traveling or not traveling abroad, that could actually provide a boost in summer. Very good point. Very good point. Enzo, any uh, again that that impact on on campus housing? Are you hearing anything? I think it's a really good question to to ask um, Wes um, and to raise it from the point of view that that, that you have done, uh, because I think all of the talk that I've heard here in in the UK and of course based on the Australia experience too, is that universities are very concerned about the potential for empty bedrooms in the autumn and the impact that that would have on, on cash flow. But I, I think you're right to ask the question in a very different way, because as I said at the start of this, we need to be thinking about different kinds of scenarios. Uh, you know, Phil's point about international students who, who may have been planning to travel in the summer, may have been tra- planning to go home, deciding to stay at, at university. So uh, uh, we just we just today don't know don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So thinking about those different scenarios and 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 and, and planning accordingly exact, is exactly the right thing to do. But just to emphasise that the issue that Australia has today, bearing in mind that they were due to start their academic year in late January, and some of them still haven't started the year properly. I can tell mm. you there are a lot of empty bed spaces across Australian universities today. And the big concern here in the UK is to avoid that situation. Yeah. Well, and, you know, let's, let's flip this a little bit because, you know, here in the US uh, th- this past week, we've been hearing kind of report after report of, you know, Fortune 500 companies that are, 
pushing their employees to to work from home and you know banning non-essential travel and a lot of groups really kind of studying the best practices for uh, for you know remote work and, and how to to be able to <laughs> conduct meetings online which is still kind of crazy that that we've got fortune 500 companies that are that are having to uh, study how to do that you would think these companies were the ones that were leading it and taking advantage of some of those efficiencies that it requires. But nonetheless, we've got, we, we've got a system in place for, for universities for remote study and studying online. And I think those have been very effective and have, have proven worthwhile. Is this kind of an event that may end up really pushing universities to put more of a focus on that in 2020 and 2021 as this pandemic goes through the cycle? And, and you know, I would say probably within a year to 18 months, we've got a we've got a vaccine in place. Are you guys hearing anything or, or what would be something that you would speculate that most universities would would look to? Are they are they going to be making a change to? doing more online learning and remote study programs? So, so Wes, from my point of view, I, I don't know a single university um, in, in the UK that isn't developing its online learning provision as a way of supporting study, not as a way necessarily of re- replacing on-campus study, but as a way of supporting study. And, and I think what's happening now is just going to accelerate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't just switch distance learning on and off. It's not easy to develop. It takes time and it's quite expensive to develop if you're going to do well. And, and I think we have to remember that there are students that are coming to us from overseas that are moving between cities in the US who are moving for education specifically to get a, to get a, a human interaction um, and don't want to study entirely online. They, you know, there are universities that are entirely online today, and, and students have that choice. And of course, there are disciplines. Um, you know, if you're a graduate student in a lab-based discipline, it's very hard to conduct all of those experiments, all of that work on online. So it's it's great that distance learning is develop, developing and growing. It will help us to a degree through the current circumstances. It will accelerate, but it's not um, an answer by itself. So I guess I guess to kind of go back to that question that I think most most of our audience members are, are asking, uh, which is you know off campus housing providers for the most part, mm-hmm. what kind of effect, if any effect, is this going to have on on occupancy? And the financial impact that it's going to have for those P and Ls of uh, of those properties, and you know, I think to sum up, you know, from the from the questions that we've asked, is is we, you know, we really don't know. I mean, it is it is a day by day, hour by hour thing that, <laughs> that everyone is is studying right now, and and organizations are having to make. Um, the best decisions that they can based on the information that they are being provided. And so to, to think of, to say, Hey, this is the exact impact it's going to have on off campus housing providers, I, I think is it's, it's really hard to, to give any kind of guidance because then on top of, on, on top of how fluid all the information is, you've also 
are dealing with the fact that every market is different. And, and that's based off of, you know, the core strengths of, of each institution, the, the infrastructure and the community around it and how, how they're going to be able to, to support the university through something. So I, I, hopefully this, I know we haven't given any kind of <laughs> you know, real answer on how this is going to, to impact folks. And, and, I, you know, because of that, I think we'll probably be doing multiple special episodes on the coronavirus as, as this plays out. But I want everybody to know that, that that's what we're here for. Again, we like being the place, the resource for getting best practices. And this is not really one of those situations where we can say, hey, this is the best practice. And and here are the things to expect, but we do definitely want to, you know, hold your hand or fist bump through the, <laughs> through this process together, and make sure that we we are somewhat of a, a sounding board as you and your organization, you and your company, you and your property are going through this process as well, and hopefully we can provide some kind of assistance from that standpoint so that you can make the best decision available. So I just, I, I agree with you about pr- probably having multiple of these special moments. The one thing I would say is to, if you're not paying attention to headlines and watching, you know, quality news sources, and I'll let people make their own judgments on what they deem a quality news source, it, it's changing, like you said, essentially by the hour, at least by the day, I wanted to make sure that I read a couple of things before we got on this morning. And um, a number of the West Coast schools in the U.S. have come out and moved all of their, the remainder of, most of them are on a quarter system. And so the the end of the second quarter is in the next two to three weeks. And so the University of Washington and Stanford have already made a decision to move the remainder of their quarter online for every class. So even if they are a face-to-face meeting course. They've given the faculty the autonomy to decide how they want to do that, but they've moved the rest of their quarters online. And then before the next quarter starts, their third quarter, they'll make a decision about how that looks for the start of that quarter. And that, that happened over the weekend because at least as I saw on Friday, it ha- I hadn't been paying attention at least to those particular institutions, but I read that article this morning. So, right, that changes what that looks like for them for the rest of the the quarter, but it is an ever-changing thing, right? And that looks different for those housing providers that are near those two campuses. Um, I hope that, you know, I hope they have reliable Wi-Fi because <laughs> you're going to have a whole lot of students using a whole lot more bandwidth on a regular basis if their faculty members are doing some sort of, um, there's campuses that are buying additional Zoom licenses if they're not using a built, like our our student management portal related to our is Blackboard based and Blackboard has a kind of Zoom feature within it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't and you're using one of these other options, campuses are, you know, buying additional licenses so you can do that. So it's just, I think, important to not only be attentive to the things that are coming out from places like the CDC and your state health department, but then paying attention to what's going on with news from the campuses that are near your property, because that's not necessarily going to be in the, you know, the, the popular headlines, if you will. Yeah. You know, the, the important thing with, uh, you know, that I would suggest everybody, you know, get your information from 
the CDC, if you're here in the in the U.S., the World Health Organization. Um, I would say NAFSA is probably, mm-hmm. as far as from academic institutions are concerned, and understanding, you know, kind of what's influencing those institutions to make some decisions. I think that's probably one of the best source. Um, so we will link all of those in the show notes so that people can check those websites. And, and most of those websites are given daily updates at this point. Don't don't rely on CNN and, and Fox <laughs> News to give you no <laughs> your information because they're just they're, they're trying to sell advertising. So <laughs> anyway, well, gentlemen, thanks so much again for spending your time with us today to, to talk about these concerns Anything else that you guys would suggest to our audience? So, look, I mean, I, I, I said my bit at the beginning, really, Wes, and that's, uh, you know, we need to be planning and doing more planning constantly. We need to be planning for the worst and, 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 and hoping for the best. I think that's the only way we're going to get through this. And not to think there is a one-size-fits-all solution, even within a single university. So even that idea that a, a university has closed all face-to-face teaching. It, it's, it's not realistic. You know, if students are back in China, they're not going to be able to access all of the material on, online. Um, if students live in, live in more distant, more remote parts of the country, even within, even within the USA, there may be issues accessing materials because of bandwidth and, and, and so on. Yeah. So there's no one size fits all. And we need to uh, you know, we need to be flexible in our response and and keep communicating. Absolutely. Well, guys, thanks again. And I, I look forward to talking to you guys on future podcasts. Hopefully it won't be about global pandemics, but I think there's probably at least at least one more <laughs> that we're going to have to do to to update this. So, guys, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, thanks Wes. Cheers.